Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Shulmon Katoshu, Entangling Vines, Case 12. Joshu sees through an old woman. An old woman lived by the road to Mount Tai. A monk asked her, which is the road to Mount Tai? Straight ahead, the woman said. When the monk had taken a few steps, the woman commented, A good monk, yet off he goes. Later, a monk told Joshu Jushin about this. Joshu said, Let me check this old woman for you. The next day, Joshu went and asked the woman the same question, and she gave the same reply. Joshu returned and said to the assembly, I've seen through that old woman on Mount Tai. Thank you all for helping create this incredible stillness that we have been experiencing since Roshi's remarks yesterday during Taisho. The enrichment of the silence and how we all move through this space, how we all share it in absolute stillness and silence is a rare thing to behold. And the best way to behold it is, guess what? In silence. And when silence is present, there is no distraction. The birds don't cut the silence into two. The wind doesn't do it. And if our zazen becomes natural and flowing, then even some noises from planes, from working machines, from people speaking far away because they have to do some work is not a distraction, just an expression of the activity of this ultimate silence the Buddha spoke about. The Buddha's name is Shakyamuni. And the word Muni, you know what the word Muni means? Hello, you're listening to a Zen Study Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Talking about today, the wisdom of silence, that unspeakable wisdom. But we'll also hear a little bit about cutting. Today's main character is a very well-known Zen master. I don't think that we have to say very much about Joshua Jushin. You open up 
the Mumon Khan, and he appears in the first case. You open up any other koan collection and you will find that he appears in numerous koans all over the Zen collections. Quite a character, Joshu Jushin. The dates that I found, and I think they always change a little bit depending where you look them up. Was it printed 10 years ago, the book? Was it printed 20 years ago? Or is it something on the internet that just was edited yesterday? They are wonderful resources now, really. But it's also, it can remind us, if you think of the internet and think of things like Wikipedia or there are Buddhist wikis where people contribute. Yeah, it's quite interesting how they change at times. And at some point, Wikipedia, you know what the a wiki, everybody can contribute to it and can change it. And so I think of Wikipedia and things like that as the massage table of truth, you know? So you want it to go into this direction. You just make a few little edits and drop a few words here or there. Then the next day, the person who doesn't like that comes and starts massaging it the other way. The only saving grace is that there is a record of history. You can look actually who edited what and when. And that way you can see the shifting of certain facts. Quite interesting. But let's assume that uh, Joshua lived from 778 until 897. That's a very long time, according to the Asian way of counting the years of a life. You are born and you're, you're one the day you were born. That's your first birthday. Somehow it makes sense, right? This is your birthday. It's not an anniversary, but it's your birthday. So he, he died in his 120th year, which is very, very old. Is there, do you remember any other figure in Zen who was way over a hundred years old. Yeah. <laughs> Even when he came to China, he already supposedly was over a hundred years old. My ordination te teacher, Joshua Roshi, whose picture you find on the right-hand side of the uh, Butsudan there, he died in his 107th year. And then Shuko-san and I, we had the real, there is really not a word for it. Uh, we still did sunzen with him and saw him up until he was 104 in November. I remember my dog-san, Roshi, Joshu Roshi, became very, very slow and I was the first because I was the Jikijitsu, so I got to go first. And my Doksan lasted a whole sitting period. <laughs> <laughs> the Sangha was not too happy <laughs> because nobody would dare to ring the bell. But even though 
proceed, Joshua Rossi would do the same and talk about the same thing over and over. The, the outpouring of whatever minute amount of life he had left into seeing his students uh, is just something that, that touches you in a way that uh, I wish all of you will have that experience. Or even more, maybe you can provide that experience to somebody. Also something we are talking about today with the koan. So those are the joshus. Joshu Jushin appears in 23 cases in the Shumon Katoshu, in that koan collections that, that I'm talking uh, about here. His teacher was Nansen Fugan. Nansen and Joshu also are one of the prime examples of a student and teacher or disciple and master relationship. Yesterday we heard about the two iron rods, the closeness, the tightness. Nansen and Joshu together, they spent over 40 years together. 40 years is a very long time. Joshu started with Nansen at age 18. So if we add 40 years to that, then around 58, when he was 58, his teacher passed away. And when you have worked with a teacher for a long time, and uh, Joshu Roshi and, and Shuko-san and I, we have had a relationship of at least three decades of working together. It's not working together. It's a growing together. It is one becoming a part of the other without any distinction. And we had the great fortune to go to Rinzaiji, which is the main temple in Los Angeles when Joshu Roshi was in uh, in the hospital there, still kept alive. Some people not willing to let him go, not willing to let him go. His body really feeble at that time. And we visited, but he still was there. We sat down next to his bed and we held his hands. And then with her knee, just by accident, Shuko-san made the bed move. <laughs> and, <laughs> which had an immediate reaction. So life was there. Life was there. His inji and the shika of Rinzaiji stayed in the room with him 24-7 and had taken turns there already for at least three weeks sleeping on the floor on some roll-out uh, piece of foam. We went back, back to Rinzaiji and did Zazen in the Zendo. And you know in Los Angeles, it's always sunny. 
it rains here and there, but then it just rains. But that afternoon, while we were sitting in the zendo, there was lightning and thunder. Very uncommon. Lightning and thunder. While we did afternoon zazen, and at that time, about when that happened, we got the news that Joshiroshi had passed away. So we went to the hospital, and it was a, like a revelation. There, his body, in the bed, completely two-dimensional. He looked like Gumby. You know Gumby? Yeah? <laughs> completely flat. It was so obvious what had left. And Arakusu was draped on him. It was flat as a table. And that made it clear for us that, yeah, this is the hull, that the shell that he has left behind. But that what has gone, of course, as a disciple, you ask yourself, where is it? And whenever we sit down for Zazen, this question does not even need an answer. So I, I'm telling you this because I think it is really important to realize what kind of privilege it is to be able to confer to live next to, to serve this kind of practice where each of us ought to do that for all of our fellow practitioners. You don't have to sit on the high chair and give a talk in order to be of service to all of us to all of the world, the sentient and insentient beings. And this is the basis for what I will take for the discussion of this koan here. Because we all ought to be bodhisattvas, not just by thinking, but by actualization. We are already Buddhas. We have heard that. Shujo Honrai Hotoke Nari. Fundamentally, all sentient beings are Buddhas. But that is not enough. You have, we have. It's always we. We have to put this Buddhahood to practice. And that is the path of the Bodhisattva. So what, what, what about this case? How does it relate to that? We'll see in a moment. So 58, his teacher died. That's where I stopped with Joshu's biography. He attended the grave of Nansen for about two years, paying respects. Ho on suru to 
required the beneficence. That's what it also said in the Kozen Daito. We had a whole one session for Edo Roshi here earlier this year, requiring the beneficence. But at age 60, after tending the grave for several years, Joshua went on a pilgrimage for another 20 years. He didn't settle down before he was 80 years old. 80 years. He was very open to learning from whoever could teach, whatever could teach, and at the same time open to give his teachings to whoever would be willing to hear it. He didn't hit people. He didn't shout. But it is always said that his lips were glowing and the words that were coming out of his mouth were golden. His most penetrating utterance is Mo. All right. The stage is set with the known actor. <laughs> now, action. <laughs> An old woman lived by the road to Mount Tai. So let's look at the geography before we get involved with the old woman. Mount Tai has many different names. Taizan, which just means Mount Tai, but also Go Tai. Go Tai. Go. Go means five. Five peak mountain. Five Peak Mountain in the Shanxi province in China, there's a mountain that has five peaks. One happens to be in the middle, and the four other peaks are surrounding it in the cardinal directions, north, south, west, and east. By the fact of this assembly, and by the fact that there is a bodhisattva that also carries the number five in a very interesting way, this mountain is believed to be the residence of that bodhisattva. And that bodhisattva is Manjushri. When you look through art, sometimes you will find that Manjushri is depicted with five locks on his head. So the five peaks represent that aspect of Manjushri. If we say it just plainly, we can say Manjushri represents the wisdom of the undifferentiated, non-dualistic, non-conceptual views without the need for intellectual understanding. But the wisdom that is prior to discriminating consciousness. The Japanese name for Manjushri is Monju Bosatsu. 
according to the Buddhist teachings, Monju actually was a disciple of the historical Buddha. And as that, as we said, he represents wisdom, intelligence, but also willpower, that determination we heard about yesterday. In the many Mahayana traditions that, you, that we find throughout Asia, Monju is the personification and the symbol of the Buddha's teachings. He is considered to be the wisest of the bodhisattvas and to act as the voice of the Buddhist teachings, the expounder of the Buddhist law. Is there another word for law? We use it all the time. Dharma. Dharma is law. And in all of Asia, Manjushri enjoyed vast popularity for many, many centuries. In modern times, however, uh, not so much anymore. Replaced by other uh, bodhisattvas, mostly canon bodhisattva, the compassionate bodhisattva, because it just shows us maybe that we need more compassion at this time and that wisdom is really not that easy to come by. Still, Monju Bosatsu finds uh, his or her way into a lot of art and also a lot of Buddhist uh, altar setups. In our, in, in current day Japan, students ask Monju Bosatsu for help, especially if they hope to pass a difficult exam for the wisdom, or an interesting other point is if they want to become calligraphers. It's also Monju is the one who gives you the willpower, the know, and the flow of this non-conceptual wisdom that you need to do really good calligraphy. Calligraphy is, if, and if you look at what is hanging in the various rooms that we have here. Look with your heart and you will feel what non-conceptual means. Looking at the calligraphies by various masters we have here, it becomes instantly seeing with your heart without asking, what does it mean? <laughs> and then you might find out what the meaning is. And that's just what I got from it, without even having to know. There's one interesting thing also that uh, I found out about Monju Bosatsu by looking at the Theravada understanding or the Theravada relationship. We sometimes forget that most of the things that made it into the Mahayana and then into Zen it had roots. It had roots, and of course, if it's Buddhism, then those roots probably go back to the elder teachings, the Theravada teachings. <coughs> there is another person 
that corresponds to Manju, to Manjushri. And we recite that person's name every day. The Japanese pronunciation is Sha-ri-shi. Kanze onbosa. Oh, no, that's the other one. Kanjizai. Kanjizai. This Avalokiteshvara. Kanjizai. Bosa gyojin. Hanya haramita. Ji shoken. Go un kaikudo isai. And then he says, Sharishi. Sariputra. Sariputra is the Theravada correspondence to Monju Bosatsu, one of the ten disciples of Shaka Buddha, the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni. And Shariputra was considered the wisest again of the ten disciples. So every day, we also, of course, have a physical depiction of Monju Bosatsu right on the Butsudan. On the left side, when you look at the Buddha, you see Monju Bosatsu riding on a lion. In his right hand, he holds a sword. And in the left hand, it's hard to discern what that is from here. But usually, it is a book of some kind or a scroll of some kind. Now, guess what that scroll, what kind of sutras that scroll has inside the Prajna Paramita Sutras, the Great Wisdom Sutras, which include the Kongohanya Kyo, which is the Diamond Sutra, and of course the Heart Sutra as well. So Sariputra, who is in that Sutra, and Manju are one and the same. In the Asian tradition, Shariputra, you know, is also understood as the begetter of understanding. Begetting understanding not in a way of just learning, but it has to be begotten in the actualization. And that's what we do in our formal practice here. There is actually a sutra that's called the Manjushri Parinirvana Sutra. And in that sutra, we are told that Manjushri is the father and mother of all the other bodhisattvas. In other countries, India, Tibet, China, Japan, and Nepal, many depictions of Monju Bosatsu can be found. Nepal, even to this day, thinks of Manjushri as the founder of the country. Monju founded Nepal upon his arrival from China. Some of the images also show 
Monju Bosatsu with Vimala Kirti. But that is a story we can't go into, and that is something you can investigate at some point when you have to deal with silence once again. In the Japanese way, he's sitting on a lion. Shishi, shishi. It's not the name of the lion. Hey, shishi, come here. No, shishi. <laughs> the lion, shishi, the shishi. When you came up to Daibosatsu Zendo, did you see anything that looked like lions? Yeah, yeah, at the Gompa. The lions, they are the defenders of the Dharma. And what is fierce about a lion without the lion having to jump you? What is it? The lions? Yeah, the lions roar. And what is the roar of the lion that Manjushri is sitting on? It's the roar of the Dharma, of course. It came, Monju, Monju was introduced to Japan by a monk called Enin about the 9th century. And that monk came from China after taking a trip to Mount Gotai, Wutai-shan. It's even so that Shinran Shonin, the founder of the Tendai sect, a different Japanese Buddhist sect, when he built the first temple of the Tendai sect, I, I think it's called Eiryakuji, he brought soil from Mount Gotai to Japan to put it in the spot where the first Tendai temple was built. The trinity that we see here was the Buddha in the middle, Monju Bosatsu on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side, we also see Fugen, Fugen Bosatsu. It's called the Shaka Sonzon or uh, Butsu Sonzon. The three images next to each other. Even when we look at this, this altar, it could be even all the four bodhisattvas are here that are the cardinal bodhisattvas. Avalokiteshvara, yeah? Kanzeon Bosatsu, you find her over here on the left-hand side. Next to her, between Monju and, and her is Jizo Bosatsu. And these two, together with Fugen and Monju, make all the four cardinal bodhisattvas that accompany the Buddha. So Monju, the guardian of wisdom, the voice and the exposition of the Dharma. Now, would it be meritorious for somebody who believes in Buddhism to visit Monju's home? Probably. Hey, Monju invited me over. <laughs> Many people went to Mount Gotai for pilgrimage. The five peaks with the plateaus in between, the center and the four directions. Who would not want to go and visit Monju Bosatsu? So, 
The only wrinkle in that was that at the time when Joshua was around, apparently a good number of people already went there. So many that there was a number of places, concessions, rooming houses, where you could buy probably your mementos from Mount Gotai. Here's the dirt from Mount Gotai, a little bit. Five dollars, please. And others just for people to get refreshments. And apparently, one of these refreshment concession booths or whatever you want to call it was run by this old woman. Well, yesterday we encountered already probably her sister. <laughs> Remember the detention and Toksan with his Diamond Sutra? How do you eat it? With what kind of mind do you eat it? It seems kind of strange that we don't know what these women's names are. But they are so important, apparently to the Zen monks, because they really show them the way. They show them where they are. But it goes also beyond that. Here you have the monks on pilgrimage. And these women who are in those concession stands, they act as bodhisattvas. The bodhisattva who gives a place to sleep to the pilgrim. The bodhisattva who offers not only a little thing to eat, but also a tasty question that might get stuck in your throat. <laughs> the bodhisattva in this case that gives directions. So there she lived, this old woman. And it's also interesting that whenever you hear about these encounters, we have this host and guest situation. The old woman is the host. Toksan was the guest. Here, also, the question comes to the host. There's another, another case uh, with an old woman. And in Mumonkan, case 29, we hear a story about uh, two monks standing outside the monastery of the sixth ancestor, Enodaikan Zenji. And it happens to be that there uh, is a flag up because Teisho is being given. When that is given, then there's a flag. And so those monks were standing out there and were looking at the flag and the wind was blowing and they were arguing. I know, we heard yesterday, don't argue. And of course, it doesn't end up well. One of the monks, you know what one of the monks says? It is the flag that is moving. While the other monk says, it is the wind that is blowing. And so they go back and forth, back and forth. And as it happens, Eno Daikan Zenji comes by. And he hears it. 
And what does he say to them? It is your mind that is moving. So where's the old woman? Yeah. This story is discussed with monks a lot. So a bunch of monks who were on a pilgrimage stayed over in one of those rooming houses, concessions, and while some, this old woman was cooking for them in the kitchen, she overheard them talking about it. Them not being clear, what, the, what, what mind is the moving? Maybe the one was right who says the flag is moving. And so they were just going on and on. And finally, after she had served dinner and everything, this old lady comes out and says, what are you talking about? Is it the wind? Is it the mind? Or is it the flag? All it is, is... <laughs> and all the monks were put in their place. So this primordial situation of host and guest, of the non-dualistic, but very real, either asking questions about it, which kind of mind do you eat it with? Or in this case, by manifesting and making it real, what this is really about is this archetypical type of the mother of wisdom, which we all need, which we all need when we start to think about koans. We hope we, uh, uh, we run into such a person, well, and I'm very grateful I have. <laughs> so, now this monk, in this case, what's happening here is the monk asks, which way is the road to Mount Tai? Not an unreasonable question. On the other hand, if you think about it, they must have traveled pretty far to get there, and now this is on the foot of the mountain. Yeah? It's like a tourist under the Eiffel Tower asking, <laughs> where is that damn thing? I can't see it. So clearly already this setup shows us somehow that this is a question that should not even be asked. Here you are at the foot of the mountain. And you're asking, where is it? But they ask anywhere. Anyway, the woman answers, go straight ahead. The monk would just probably thank her. Mm. Thanks, cool. Yeah. And then he turned around and walked on. And after taking a few steps, Somewhat under her breath, the old woman would say, ah, good monk, yet off he goes. In other words, we could interpret it as, ah, oh, another sucker who just listens to the words. The question, which way is the road to Mount High? You can see it if you 
are a Zen practitioner is the question. How do I realize that wisdom of Monju? What is the path to the non-discriminating primordial wisdom? And this Bodhisattva, the old woman, gives a very, very straight answer. Straight ahead. Straight ahead. If we want to say it in a different way, let's say it how it is said in Hakuin's Song of Zazen. The truth eternally reveals itself. Go straight ahead. Be with what unfolds right here. But the monks usually would just go on. And later, wait a minute. That old lady pulled a fast one on me. That old lady. There was more to it than I saw initially. Well, that's a wonderful thing because she was able to plant a seed by her comment. Sometimes people think, oh, look at this snarky old lady. She's just making fun. Oh, yeah, you might look like a respectable person, (coughs) but you're really not worth anything. But putting that little bug into the monk who is probably really looking for something is again the compassionate act of a bodhisattva. She is speaking on Manjushri's behalf. She is speaking on Manju's behalf and implanting the seed of wisdom, which begins, as we heard Roshi talk about yesterday, with the arousing of the great doubt. What did she say? Something's not right. So, but some monks then returned home and, and, and one of them later told Joshu about it, you know? Joshua himself, before he was 18, before he became the disciple of Nansen, he knew about Buddhism and he would fall into what I would call maybe a believer of Buddhism, into that kind of description. It is reported actually that he planned to climb Mount Taishan to go to that mountain and to pay homage to Manjushri there. There, Of course, there were plenty of temples with statues of Manjushri. And he did it because he had the very deep urge to be endowed with wisdom. So what's the easiest thing? Give me, give me. You go somewhere and you ask, please give me wisdom, salvation, Either one is fine. (laughs) However, 
there was an old monk he knew who wrote a poem and handed it to Joshua. And this is written down by Myogen Senzaki, actually. And the poem goes like this. All mountains are equally good. Blue ones afar or a green one near. Each one has a Manjushri enshrined. So why go to Taishan in particular? The sutras depict Manjushri riding on a lion. You may see many illusions like that in the mountain clouds. It is not real to the eye of a Zen monk. It is not the happiness a Zen monk seeks. After reading that, Joshu decided not to go. Now, where are those mountains? Near and far. I see a whole assembly of mountains right here. Each of us is that mountain that that monk wrote in the poem. All mountains are equally good. Blue ones afar and the green one near. Male, female, young, old, dark skin, light skin, whatever differentiation. Already Manjushri and Monju with the wisdom of non-discrimination shines through here. And Joshu learned that fairly young, before he saw Nansen. So, but later in his life, one day Joshua actually saw a monk paying homage to a statue of the Buddha. We do that every day here. But listen to what Joshua said. What are you doing? Oh, I I am paying homage to the Buddha, said the monk. What is the use of that? inquired Joshu. The monk said, Is it not a good thing to pay homage to the Buddha? And Joshu declared flatly, A good thing is not better than nothing. Quite profound. And it's important for us to channel Joshua to ourselves. So before we pay homage or bow to the Buddha, before we open the Dharma, which again, opening this Dharma is us taking on the persona of the expounder of the law. Think, feel about it when we chant that we are Monju. And when we do that, before we do it, 
Well, ask yourself, what are you doing? And if you have any doubts like this monk here, you will have to think that a good thing is not better than nothing. So please let that stew a little bit. The koan continues. So Joshu hears about it. And somehow it seems uh, atypical that Joshua at this age, because it's in his monastery, and he didn't live in a monastery until he was 80 years old. It doesn't seem very typical that then the abbot would say, oh, folks, you just stay here. I'm going to go and I'll do it for you. I'll I'll check that woman out for you. Yeah. You just take it easy, and, and I'll go, and I'll check her out. Maybe the monks thought, oh, hey, that's nice. That's nice. Let's see. Let's see what, what he'll tell us. So Joshua went, and he asked the woman the same question. And she gave the same answer. That's what it says here on the page. The same question. Which way is the road to Mount Tai? But there's a vast difference here. Joshu standing at the foot of Mount Tai. Knowing very well where the real mountain is. And the woman, from an outside point of view, giving the same answer. And as he walks away, throwing her little snarky comment after him. A good monk. Hmm, he seems like a good monk, but Ah, there goes another one. This interaction seems puzzling if you look at it from the outside. But look at it from the same way that you would look at Mumon Khan case 11. Because Joshua has gone around examining people at various occasions. In this case of Mumon Khan case 11, the gateless barrier, he went off to inspect a couple of hermits. So Joshua went to a hermit's cottage and asked, Is the master in? Is the master in? What did the hermit do? He raised up his fist. Joshua said, Ah, the water is too shallow to anchor here, and went on. Coming to another hermit's cottage, he asked again, 
Is the master in? Is the master in? We met the master over the last couple of days. This hermit, what did he do? He raised his fist. Joshua said, free to give, free to take, free to kill, free to save. And he bowed. Now, this is the place where we have to look at the right hand of Manjushri. What's in his right hand? The sword. So one of the things we say about the sword of Manjushri is it cuts off delusions. But there's something that is even more important, and that is about the way the sword cuts. It doesn't cut like an ordinary sword. Ordinary swords cut Ganto so that he died. It cuts something into two. But the sword of Manjushri cuts into one. It cuts into one. We tend to think that Joshua is comparing. We tend to think that the old woman is also, one is checking out the other, measuring up. But let's not forget, this is at the bottom of Mount Tai, where the Dharma is coming through Manjushri's voice. No comparison. And really, what makes this the perfect Joshu type of koan again is when he returns to the assembly, who have been taking it easy while he was out. He returned, he calls everybody together the next morning, and he declares, I have seen through that old woman of Mount Tai. Usually it says, and 50 people were enlightened. In this case, it probably would say a good amount of monks were disappointed. <laughs> because they were expecting some kind of an answer. And I have it written down right here, the answer. But it, se it seems like uh, we have reached the time to <laughs> close and we'll have to do that another time. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. 
If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.